This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. This is episode number 50. Pretty exciting. Halfway to 100. And we're looking at Genesis 3, 22 through 24 today, finishing up Genesis chapter 3. And we've got quite the topic for you. We're going to be talking about death. I know, I know, it's not a popular topic, but that's uh, what we're looking at today on the podcast. What do you think about death? Suppose if you are like most people, (laughs) you try not to think about it at all, but If and when you are faced with the issue of death, what are your thoughts on it? In this episode of the One Verse Podcast, I'm going to invite you to start thinking about death differently than the way most people think about it. And believe it or not, while most people view death as a curse or a punishment from God, a proper understanding of death allows us to see it as a blessing. Or an act of kindness from God. That's what we're going to see today. Genesis 3, 22-24. And hey, I know that last week I told you that I would probably announce the new part of my website ministry this week on the podcast. But due to some unforeseen complications and problems, I had to push the announcement back a week or two. Uh, if you're an email newsletter subscriber, though, you have already been sent an email about this new area of my website. I'm pushing it out to them first so um, they can help me work out some of the bugs and problems. So uh, some of those have come in. I'm, I'm taking care of that. And then uh, once all that's straightened out, hopefully I will let you know. So I probably will do that next week or the week after, definitely by October. If you're not an email subscriber, look, it's easy and free. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe to get started. Uh, By signing up, I'm going to send you a free ebook, a couple free ebooks actually. And uh, that's redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. And then pretty soon on the podcast here, I'll let you know about this new area of my website. Again, if you are on my email newsletter, go check your email. I sent out a notification yesterday to my email subscribers about the new area of my website. So, Uh, Anyway, hope to see you there. Now, let's get on with today's study as we look at the topic of death. Okay, so uh, let's talk about death. What a thrilling topic, right? Of course... (laughs) The thing is, death is sort of like the big elephant in the room. Uh, Nobody wants to talk about it, even though everybody knows it's there. We fear death, run from death, ignore death, try to keep death at bay. But as we all know, eventually, death comes to us all. And so, as we get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, we finally get introduced to this big human problem of death. And yet, death is introduced to us in the Bible in a somewhat surprising way, shocking even. Just like last week, remember when we saw that when Adam and Eve got their clothes from God, 
I, I invited you to step back and sort of look at that entire passage from a different perspective and see that God didn't actually sacrifice or kill an animal in order to give him those clothes. Go listen to that podcast if you didn't. If you didn't, that's uh, episode forty-nine. Uh, but we're going to do this. See the same thing today. We're certainly going to step back and look at this passage from a new light, and in the process, we will see death in a different way as well. And sort of to do that, what I want you to do is sort of approach the story of Genesis as if you had never read it before. Uh, I invite you to think about the story of Genesis as if it were a Hollywood movie production. You know, these movie producers in Hollywood, they put together these scripts and then uh, make these movies, direct these movies. Imagine if they were creating the story of Genesis, all right? In that case, here's how it would go, okay? God's line, don't eat from my fruit or you will surely die. Then we have a scene, Adam and Eve eating from the fruit. Next scene. God arrives in a storm of bloody vengeance and wrath and shreds the wicked sinners to death, just as he warned them he would do. And then the credits roll. (laughs) Uh, You can probably think of movies that uh, have a plot pretty much just like that, right? There's this some divine commandment for humans not to do something. It's coupled with some sort of divine threat. The silly humans, though, disregard the threat and the commandment, and uh, they go ahead and do what they were told not to do. And so the God, powerful being, whoever it is, returns with bloody vengeance and retaliation, just as he promised he would. The end. Of course, sometimes in those movies, the humans fight back, and they somehow defeat these, these divine beings, or these alien races, or these kings and authorities, or whatever it is. But that's often how these movies go. In fact, it's not just movies. We get outside of movies. You get into books and literature. Get into the classic literature of other cultures, other religions, even, even some of the uh, stories of the United States and, and of our own country. And you can get into Norse mythology and um, Eastern mythology, all these, these myths and, and stories of other cultures, other religions. And we see that that's often how things go. There's a god and or or set of gods, you know, a pantheon, and he says, don't do this, and the humans do it, and then the gods pour out judgment and wrath and fire and send armies to kill them. And I'll be honest, you know, actually, lots of the stories about God in the Old Testament are exactly this way as well. Now, of course, why God is portrayed that way in the Old Testament is... Boy, a subject for future study. I, I, I did write about it some in my book, The Atonement of God, and I hope to write more about it in future books. But I want you to notice, aside from the fact that this is the way God is presented later in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, notice that for now, right here in Genesis 3, this is not the way God responds to human disobedience. Yes, Here in Genesis 3, well, death does come upon Adam and Eve. It doesn't come with bloodshed and retaliation, with vengeance. There's no rolling heads, nothing like that. Uh, In fact, the death itself doesn't even come directly from God. Quite to the contrary, when read in the proper light, all we see from God in Genesis 3, 20 through 24, is kindness, mercy, and grace. Here in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve rebel 
and do what they should not do. God doesn't kill anyone or anything. He doesn't punish people. He's not the bringer of death. He doesn't even sacrifice an animal, as we saw last week, from verses 20 and 21, to give, to give clothes to Adam and Eve. Instead, all we see here is love, grace, and mercy. That's what we saw last week. He gave him linen clothes to wear, treated them like royal guests, like priests in his temple. And, and, and here again, despite how we might think about this, despite how we might feel, when God blocks their ability to eat from the tree of life, this also is an act of love grace, and mercy. All right, so, so let's, let's see this. In fact, just to sort of give you the idea, the picture, let me read the verses for you. This is 20 through, uh, verses 22 through 24. The text says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so these are the closing verses of uh, Genesis chapter 3, and I'm not going to tackle the issue here about who God is talking to. You know, the begin there, it says, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Something. This is a reference to the Trinity, you know, one God, three persons. Others think it's a royal plural, such as when kings and presidents and emperors refer to themselves in the plural. We have decided, when really it was him. Uh, some people think God is uh, talking about himself and the angelic host, all the angels and spiritual beings that he also had created. Look, I don't really care which view you take. There's others' views as well, but... Frankly, I don't think it matters too much. Uh, it's definitely not the point of the text, so we're not going to allow ourselves to get sidetracked into that. I'm also not going to say anything about the cherubim and the flaming sword at the east of the garden. Uh, I don't know exactly what this was or how it kept Adam and Eve and their children out of the garden. I mean, look, <laughs> imagine a garden with uh, trees and shrubs and stuff, and they and, and someone puts a gate on one end of the garden, but there's not really a fence all the way around. What's going to keep you from just going around the side and going in another way? You know, okay, so this 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 cherubim and flaming sword is there on the east of the garden. Why couldn't Adam and Eve just go to the north side or the west side or right the south side and, and walk through the trees and the shrubs that way to get into the garden and access the tree of love? I don't know. I don't know. Again, I, I, it doesn't matter. They're removed from the garden and they cannot get back in. That's the point, and uh, that's really all that we need to understand about this. Uh, the, the main focus of these three verses is that God cuts off access to Adam and Eve for two reasons. Uh, he removes them from the garden because they've gained knowledge of good and evil. That's the first reason. And secondly, so that they cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. So that's what we're going to talk about in, in this podcast episode. Let's look at them one at a time. So first, God says that uh, he must step in and do something because Adam and Eve gained the knowledge of good and evil. God says they have become like one of us to know good and evil. And it's interesting here because I, I pointed it out before at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes and tempts Eve. You remember that the serpent says that that uh, she could become like God, knowing good and evil, if she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And so it's interesting that according to God, what God says here, what the serpent said has come true. God says they have become like one of us. Of course, remember as well, and I pointed it is back in I pointed it out back at the beginning of Genesis 3, when God created mankind, he created and created us, created man in his image and likeness, created them in his image and likeness, male and female together. We talked about that before. So it's sort of interesting. God creates them in his likeness. The serpent comes along and says, You can become like God. And if you eat from this tree, and then here at the end, God says they have become like one of us. So what's going on here? Were they like God or were they not? Um, you know, and, and if they started off being like God, how could they now become more like God or like God again? It's just, you know, lots of people get confused about this. Well, the answer is, remember, there was these seven or actually eight key activities of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and seven of these were given by God to humans to perform in our life. It's our responsibilities. It's, it's partly what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God as his ambassadors, his emissaries here on earth. We are supposed to do the things that we see God doing. It's like Jesus in his ministry. I can only see, I can, I, mean, I can only do what I see my father doing. Well, that's what we're supposed to do as well. Do what we see God doing. All right, so there was these seven key activities of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God gave these to humans to do as well, to perform as well as his image and likeness on earth. Now, there was this one activity, this eighth activity, which God reserved for himself. And it was this activity of judging or deciding between right and wrong, good and evil. God decided what was good and not good. And he reserved this activity for himself. Why is that? It's not because he was selfish, but because the only way to properly judge or decide between right and wrong, good and evil, is to know everything about everything. Of course, that sort of knowledge only God has, and so that's why he reserved this this uh, activity of judging, deciding between good and evil, right and wrong, it's why he reserved it for himself. All right? So what happened when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, is they tried to get, obtain this eighth activity of God for themselves as well. Uh, they were basically saying that they would decide for themselves what was good and what was not good. Remember, God told them that the, that the uh, fruit of the tree was not good for them to eat, but when they looked at it, they said, well, it looks good to us, right? And so they ate it. And so in this way, they began to judge for themselves what was right and, and wrong, what was good and evil. Okay, and so that is what God is referring to here in Genesis 3.22. Mankind, he says, has started to judge between right and wrong, good and evil. And in this activity, they have become like God. Of course, as we've seen already in multiple ways in Genesis chapter 3, I've tried to point it out as we've gone along, uh, human judgment is quite often wrong. God's judgments are always right, but human judgment, when we try to decide between right and wrong, good and evil, we often make wrong judgments, poor judgments, incorrect judgments. Uh, they made a wrong judgment about what God said about the fruit being bad. It looks good to us. They made a wrong judgment about what the serpent said, right, in contrast to what God had said. They made a wrong judgment about their clothing. Remember, they, they chose fig leaves as their clothing, 
They made a wrong judgment about their relationship. They were supposed to live in unity with one another. And now God says in uh, verse 16, and, and then also we see it when Adam names Eve, that uh, now they're sort of in rivalry with each other, competing to who has first place rather than facing their task shoulder, by sho- shoulder to shoulder, side by side in, in, in equality and unity. Uh, and then, of course, we see this wrong judgment take a terrible turn in Genesis 4, which we'll begin to look at here in a couple of weeks. But the point is, right for now, that even though Adam and Eve have taken upon themselves this eighth key activity of God, the judging between right and wrong, they're doing a poor job of it. So although they have become like God, uh, they make wrong judgments. They make bad judgments quite unlike God. All right, so what this shows us is that this knowledge of good and evil, while it does cause humans to become more like God, it's a dangerous knowledge in the hand of humans. We make, yes, we make judgments between good and evil, right and wrong, like God does, but because we do not know everything, many of our judgments turn out to be wrong. And these wrong judgments bring great devastation, destruction, and pain into the world. We've already seen some of that. Adam tries to get preeminence over his wife by naming her. We're going to see this again in Genesis chapter 4 with what happens between Cain and Abel. This is what happens when we humans, because of our limited understanding of what is going on in this world, when we make judgments right and wrong. We see this all the time in our world today. I don't care which event you look at. Look at some painful event, maybe in your own personal life. Came from some, some poor decision or bad judgment on your part. This is what God is talking about here in Genesis 3, 22. Now, I want to be clear. I believe, I firmly believe, that humans were intended to eventually have the knowledge of good and evil. The, the ability to judge between right and wrong, to determine you know, what is good and what is evil. Uh, I believe, however, that God intended us to learn about good and evil within a relationship with him, while we lived in relationship with him. He was going to teach us these things and help us learn how to make these decisions as we communicated and discussed these things with him. In fact, that's what we see God doing all the way through Scripture, and even in our own lives right now. You know, he gives us Scripture, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us experience, he gives us the counsel of other people, all right? All these things to help us make better judgments, better decisions about what is right and what is wrong. And I believe that is what God would have done in the very beginning. He didn't reveal this activity to say, look what I can do and you can't. No, he revealed this activity to begin the teaching process so that we could participate with him and join with him and be in communication with him over these decisions. In fact, we know, for example, that in the future, 1 Corinthians 6.3, we will judge the angels. So, so, So the knowledge of good and evil, it's not an evil knowledge. Uh, it is a knowledge that God was planning on teaching to us over time in the midst of our relationship with him, and which he is doing now, and which he will continue to do in the future and in eternity. So what happened with Adam and Eve is that they took a shortcut. 
And they gained this knowledge on their own, outside of their relationship with God. And so what's going on here in verses 22 through 24 is that God steps in to limit the damage. And what does he do? Well, he sends them out of the garden. They're sent out from the temple of God. And I don't want you to think of this as an exile. Right? They were always going to be sent out. Remember, we saw that. The garden was a, a fertile and fruitful area in the world, and they were to expand its borders and till the ground and help the garden cover the whole earth. They were always going to be sent out, and as they went out, the garden would expand with them. But now, they're sort of being sent out, we could say, prematurely. They're not ready to go out. But since they've gained the knowledge of good and evil in the wrong way, they must be sent out. They must sort of fly the coop before they can actually fly. And that brings us to sort of the second main idea in today's study about why God drove them out of the garden and restricted their access to the tree of life. God did this not as punishment, but as protection. Not as a curse, but as a kindness. Look, we could go back and look at verses 16 to 19. Remember, God told there, told Adam and Eve there, what some of the consequences of their decision would be. Pain in childbearing, trouble in your relationship, you know, frustration in doing your work. Their life, basically, God is saying, their life would not be the way God planned it to be or intended it to be. Their life was now going to be significantly less enjoyable, less wonderful, less pleasurable, fulfilling, and satisfying than what God had planned, what God had wanted. So what God is doing here is in restricting access to the tree of life is he's stepping in to protect them from an eternity of facing these negative consequences. You may recall way back in Genesis 1 somewhere, uh, we looked at the idea, the truth from Genesis 1, that death was built into creation. Death existed before this event here. And that's because death itself is not a bad thing. It was there from the beginning. It was actually a requirement for the proper functioning of God's creation. Right? And even humans were subject to it. But what we saw is that God made the tree of life as a way to counteract death in humans. And, you know, we would do that by eating from the tree of life. And and that way we could live forever. Death would not come to us. All right. So, So, but now that the eternal life God planned for humans... All right, has become marred and, and, and filled with toil and hardship and frustration. God knows that living forever with these uh, negative consequences would basically be like a living hell, an eternal hell. And, and God, in his love and mercy, he doesn't want us to experience eternal life as eternal hell. And so what he does is he puts a limit on the length of the life. He, he restricts their access to the tree of life. He basically allows death, which was built into creation, he allows death to take its natural course. God had something much better in store for humanity than the way the life would now become 
And so the only way to release humans from this life so that we can actually experience the life God has for us is if we go through death and then resurrection, of course. So do you see what this means? It means that death is not a curse from God. It's actually a blessing. It's an act of kindness on the part of God. Uh, The first humans are sent out into the world beyond Eden, not in anger and not as punishment, but as an act of kindness. God is rescuing them from an eternity of suffering. Now look, I know that that much of life is wonderful and beautiful. And I hope that you and your loved ones live a long and fruitful life. But as we all know, as great as life can be, life is also filled with lots of frustration and hardship, isn't it? I would say that for most people, you know, life, life is not a bed of roses. Life is very difficult. In fact, for some people, life is so difficult they would rather die than live. And that's tragic. And God is sad about that as well. He mourns about that, that life is that way. We face frustration in our jobs, frustration with our children and our parents, frustration with our health and our finances, frustration with our relationships and our spouses. And it's just life is so much frustration. And God wants to rescue us, deliver us from this frustration. But if we had been able to eat from the tree of life and live forever, there would have been no escape from this frustration. It would have continued forever and ever. So, so while I, I do not encourage you to you know, make a, a headlong rush towards death, look, I, I don't want you to seek death, I pray for death, even look forward to death. That's not the case. But I do want you to develop the same attitude that Paul had. Basically, look, there's Paul, Paul's idea, which is the right idea, is that while there is great benefit and blessing to being alive, we can help people and be with people and love people, serve people, right? There's a greater blessing and benefit to depart this life and be with the Lord for eternity and our loved ones. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, okay, that's good, it's wonderful to live, but then he says, to die is gain. (laughs) What awaits us after death is actually better, far better than this life, as great as this life is. What this means is that death is not the end. Death is only the beginning. Death is not the enemy, but is simply a doorway from a, a pretty good life, right? But a life that's full of frustrations and pain. And death is the doorway to the perfect life, which is free of all those frustrations. That's the life that God always wanted for us. What we see here is that death is a blessing from God. It's it's not the end. It's a new beginning. It's the doorway to a better life. It's the, the first step in the greatest adventure of life. Look, I, I can't tell you how to view death or you know, even what to do when you face death. I, I would invite you, though, to begin rethinking everything you might think and feel about death. If you can view it not as the end, but as a beginning, not as a curse, but as a blessing, you will then begin to see what the Bible 
has to teach about death. And yes, I know, look, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, especially in verse 56, that death is an enemy, that Jesus defeated the enemy of death, right? Uh, And so I I do know that death is sort of the enemy to life, but what we see from the Bible is that death is not an enemy we must fear. Death is not a curse or a punishment from God. It is a blessing and an act of kindness. So, uh, you know, probably we could say that the key verse in Genesis, the the entire book, the book of Genesis, is Genesis 50-20. And it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Takes us all the way back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This one of these this closing verse, the last chapter of Genesis, points us back to this whole thing, back at the very beginning, knowledge of good and evil. And we see that, well, there's certain things in life that we intend for evil, or even that we think are good but then turn out to be evil. God can take these things and turn them around for good. Joseph got sold into slavery. That's sort of the picture there that leads up to that verse, Genesis 50, verse 20. And his brothers meant it for evil, but God used it for good to rescue people and deliver people and and help people not die in a famine. And that's sort of the theme that we see here at the end of Genesis chapter 3. It seems to us that death is evil, death is bad, death is an enemy. We fear death. We try to ward ourselves, protect ourselves from death. But God can use it for good. And it is good. It's a blessing from God, in a sense. Even God doesn't send it, but he uses it for good to rescue us, deliver us from a life of frustration and pain and sorrow and destruction and devastation and sin and all the stuff that makes this life difficult so that we can then begin to experience the life he always had for us. Look, we know that at the end, When we have our new bodies, there's the new heaven and the new earth. We know from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, 22, we will then have access to the tree of life. Once again, the tree of life comes back. And in that time, it's interesting, here in Genesis 3, the gate to the garden is shut to them. But there, in in, in the end of Revelation, it says the gates will never be shut. People will be able to go in and out. They won't even shut them at night. There's nothing to fear then. So, there's hope. (laughs) Death is a hopeful thing. And if we can start viewing it that way, then as great as this life is, as much as we don't want to die, we also can see that death is a blessing because it's a doorway, a gate to the better life that God has always wanted for us. So, I just want to encourage you, start thinking about death a little bit differently. Yes, death is tragic especially when a young life, child's life, ends prematurely. Death of a loved one is snuffed out. Nobody wants that. But I do encourage you to start thinking about death with the recognition, the realization that death is not the end. It's only the beginning. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul writes. And that's especially true for us who know what the future holds. And when we know that, and when we focus on that, we see that there is no more sting to death. That's what we see here at the end of Genesis chapter 3. 
Not an angry God with a scowl on his face, kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. He's not angry. He's rescuing them, delivering them, loving them. That brings us to the end of Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I'm not just going to jump right into Genesis chapter 4. I get new subscribers coming on all the time, and I want them to be able to catch up without having to listen to 50 episodes. So if you're sort of brand new or just listening to this, next week I'm going to do a summary of Genesis chapter 3, which will get you up to speed. And probably what you could do is go listen to the summary of Genesis 1, and then the summary of Genesis 2, and then the summary of Genesis 3. And in that way, in three episodes, listening to three episodes, you'll get all caught up so that you can... Be on the same page with us as we begin to look at Genesis chapter 4. And that's important because this thing we've seen about death, well, we see one of the negative things that comes with it when we enter into Genesis chapter 4. And we're also going to see one of the worst parts about death in Genesis chapter 4. And also, you may recall, I've been telling you, there are six foundational revolutionary truths in these chapters. We've only seen five so far. And that fifth one, sort of introduced to us today, but I didn't mention it. It's really introduced to us in Genesis chapter 4. That's what we'll be looking at then. And don't forget, uh, if you haven't joined my email newsletter, now is the time. It's free, and uh, just for joining, I'll send you free ebooks. You'll also get notified about this free area of my ministry and website I've been working on for a while. To join, all you got to do is go to redeeminggod.com slash subscribe. Look forward to seeing you there. And I look forward to seeing you next week. We're going to summarize everything we've learned so far in Genesis chapter 3 so that we can be prepared for Genesis chapter 4. See you then. See you then.